and welcome to Hudson Institute. My name is Peter Rao. I'm a senior fellow here and the director of our Center on Europe and Eurasia. And today it is my pleasure to welcome to uh, Hudson Institute a well-known face in Washington, a good friend of the Institute's, I would also say, Michael Link. Michael Link is a member of the Bundestag, the German parliament. He is a, a member of the FTP uh, faction there, also in the leadership team there. The FDP, for those of you who might be less familiar with German politics, is the Free Democratic Party. So in the American lexicon, something like the Libertarians uh, in the German system. They, of course, are a member of the coalition alongside the Greens and the Social Democratic Party. Uh, Michael Link is uh, best known right now as the coordinator for transatlantic relations in the uh, German Federal Foreign Ministry. He has served there in the past uh, as state minister. He's also been an important player at the OSCE. The Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe in their Warsaw office, yeah. focusing on human rights. He's a spokesman for European issues, so EU issues for the FDP, also has a say on budget and foreign affairs committee matters. And again, it's really a pleasure to have you here, and thanks so much for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you, Peter. So let's begin with uh, a question that might be swirling in the minds of viewers who know less about the German system, and that is on the one hand, you're a member of parliament, but on the other hand, you're also working in the uh, in the foreign ministry as a coordinator for transatlantic yeah. relations. What does a coordinator for transatlantic relations do? Well, that is an institution which exists since 1982. Traditionally, it's held by a parliamentarian. And the, uh, the mission statement is to promote transatlantic relations wherever you can do it, both in a, uh, between societies, of course between parliaments, of course between governments, uh, but in all areas of cooperation uh, to promote what can be done in improving these relations and to make them last, especially in the situation where less and less um, um, Europeans on the one side and Americans on the other side uh, have, let's say, a natural personal link, let's say, from the time where a lot of American troops have been stationed in Germany or in Europe. Uh, we are happy and glad to have the U.S. troops in Germany, but it's clearly less than uh, during the Cold War area. And therefore we need to increase exchange programs. I'm working very actively on uh, broadening exchange programs between the US and Germany. And yes, in a, in a short term, let's say it's a sort of special representative on transatlantic issues, held by a parliamentarian, but working for the government as a whole. Well, maybe the most important exchange program is when your chancellor comes to Washington to meet with the president. He was just here uh, last week. Do you have a <laughs> summary of that? Can you give us some secrets, some readouts from how that conversation went, more than just the rather elliptical and short White House press statement that we got after the very quick, I would say, trip in and out of uh, the Oval Office? Well, I have no readout. I have no, no, uh, no, no summary. Uh, that doesn't exist at all. We'll cut that, that is... from the recording and just go straight to uh, the, the secrets that are coming next. <laughs> <laughs> well, it goes directly to the National Archives. <laughs> but uh, no, frankly speaking, the whole thing is very clear. You need, you need working visits in confidence. Uh, and maybe the, the fact that it happened here um, for uh, some hours combined with a transatlantic flight seems unusual. No, it's totally usual that we do that in the Europe, on the continent, the European continent all the time, um, between France and Germany, between France and Italy, between Italy and Germany, between Sweden and Germany. Right now, Sweden holds the, the chairmanship of the presidency. So that happens all the time. And I think it's uh, needed also more between, between the two of them. The chancellor and the president had a very good conversation. That's, that's what we hear. We get a feedback that the chancellor saw it as a very, very good meeting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly what we need even more. 
Well, as the president said at the start of that meeting during the brief press spray was that uh, the last time they held talks was before the war, the last time I should say that Olaf Scholz yeah. was in Washington. Yes. And uh, that was a rather dramatic visit, um, I recall. And here they are meeting again. The world has entirely changed over the course of that year. Uh, and that takes me to uh, the war in Ukraine and this famous, even most Americans now that work on foreign policy know this term, Zeitenwende, that is supposedly taking place in Germany. Uh, let's begin with the war itself. Um, in Ukraine, uh, uh, the Germans are the largest supporters within the European Union by sheer numbers flowing into Ukraine for aid. But some critics will say that as a percentage of GDP, Germany lags a bit. I think it's 15th or 16th. Um, What's true? How should we think about German support for Ukraine? What's the right framework or the right way to think about uh, the German contribution to the war effort? If you, if you calculate only GDP-wise, and if you see only these figures, uh, then indeed that l might look as if we are somewhere between the others. Mm -hmm. But if you add it all up, and that is exactly what we expect in that discussion, not to only see the headlines, but really to go into the details, then we can clearly show that we are the ones who do most in the EU, in the European Union. Of course, set aside uh, countries like Estonia and, uh, and, and uh, Poland directly neighboring to it, they in many ways uh, are more exposed directly. But financially, militarily, and when it comes to refugees, we in the end are the ones who do most, and that can be clearly proven in the EU among and the other allies. Let's not forget that we have uh, more than one million Ukrainian refugees. Mm. Um, we uh, uh, um, did that not only by having them, but by giving them the right to work, uh, to be part of the labor market from the day one. That is something we don't do usually for other refugees. So we really try to integrate them as, as fast as possible, knowing that they need that also to support their families back home. But uh, they are not expensive like this, like this for, for, for the German taxpayer. We see it as a, as a very, very important uh, support. In addition to that, we have, uh, yes, we take our uh, burden to have a lot of refugees from Sub-Saharan Africa and Afghanistan and Syria still coming to Europe. Germany um, uh, accepts much more refugees than any other uh, country not uh, lying at the border. Uh, and like this, we try to support especially those who are so exposed, like Italy and Greece, to help them in their situation. Not all European partners are doing that. We would like to see other European partners to do more on that area. And finally, on military aid, we are now extremely active on bringing the necessary number of battalions of LEOs to Ukraine, not only sending our own LEOs, but also identifying where we can buy additional LEOs for the Ukrainians or un, uh, uncommissioned, decommissioned LEOs, uh, for example, in Switzerland, and let them be sent. All in all, we can prove we do a lot. We can, together with other European partners and the US, always think about what we could do more. Therefore, we don't, don't rule out anything for the future. But we can clearly show that we do a lot and not only pay lip service. Uh, when we hear criticism that that is uh, maybe too late, yes, we can all, should all think, uh, what could we do, what could we do faster? The fact that the Leos are still not there is certainly not good. Uh, we all should learn from that, uh, the U.S. as well as we do, but we hope that uh, the support in the, in the U.S. for this military aid for Ukraine will stay as high as it is right now, because whoever would give up on that would play into the hand of the Russians and would do a huge mistake. Are you 
just as a feeling generally satisfied with your government's performance and that, quite frankly, of Europe? Um, do you, are there areas where you just suggested that we could have done more earlier? Are there areas where you think we could do more now or should do more? Or what trajectory are we on? Are we on a good way? Yeah, we are, in, we are in a good way of understanding that we need to work on our mechanisms, how we can help. For example, Europe for the first time, that is, that is uh, something I would I, I like to explain here. Europe for the first time has developed military financial practical instruments to support Ukraine. And we call it the European Peace Facility. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit, maybe the, 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 the name is a little bit, little bit, little bit uh, surprising. You should but, rename but it the European War Facility. See how that, uh, maybe that'll make I, sense. I would, I would call it the European Support Facility. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is uh, but, but we needed an institution that exists. And this U European Peace Facility existed. And that is a thing where we can channel money in order to, to gather as Europeans buy ammunition and right. armament for Ukraine. By the way, we Germans, addition to what we do nationally, bilaterally, we pay more than more than one third of it in the European Peace Facility. Until now, it's a quarter. In the future, it will be more up till one third. Uh, what we are financing of the total bunch, and here that's a really important point. We need to overcome this approach. What does France? What does Germany? Mm -hmm. What does what does Denmark? We as Europeans need to get our act together, act as one and support Ukraine as one um, that has two, we, we do one thing, but we achieve two. First of all, we help Ukraine much better than if we have individual help only, because the Ukrainians, they want to have a consolidated approach where ammunition really fits into it. And second, we give a signal to Russia that you will not manage to split us. So we at Hudson are pleased that you're the transatlantic coordinator because it means that you're often in Washington. And I think uh, most of us agree, all of us at Hudson, that you're a sober voice. But that also means we're taking you away from your constituents in Heilbronn at times. Uh, this is just north of Stuttgart. In Baden-Württemberg. In the so southern western state of Baden-Württemberg. When you're at home uh, and you're talking about the war in Ukraine, what kind of uh, reception do you get in town halls? What do your voters say? And um, what yeah. outside of the Berlin bubble is kind of the feeling? I know yeah. Germany's a big place with variated opinion, but maybe you could sketch that out a little bit for our viewers. Absolutely. In my, in my, in my constituency, we are very, extremely strong in manufacturing. Uh, we have the uh, second largest Audi plant uh, in the world. Uh, and for example, all Audi 6 and Audi 8 uh, in the world, which you see in the streets, are from my constituency. So beautiful cars, mostly sold to a large degree to China. And to uh, much of them also because before the war also to Russia, and our manufacturing industry when it comes to especially um, well heavy equipment also a lot went to Russia before the war, so we really have an issue discussing on in my constituency with voters but also with entrepreneurs mm -hmm. um, to uh, how to explain the sanctions. I have one because they took a big loss when they, they took a, they took a big loss. Uh, it comes at a price for them. And uh, the chairman of the local business association, a good friend of mine, um, he himself suffered a lot because he sold a lot in Russia. Mm -hmm. But he says, I do it, I follow, I, I, I accept these sanctions because I accept that if we continue like this, then we will um, um, not um, do what is necessary to stop an aggressor. Um, but this is really something which is certainly cannot only be done by words. That is why we support as German government 
those areas hit by the sanction against Russia, these, these industries, we support them by financial support in order to make it easier for them to redirect their investments and to find other markets. That's expensive. And that is another thing we share of this war. And it's very often not seen in the US that at the same time, while supporting Ukraine, we also need to redirect some sort of IO investment, de-risking when it comes to China, finding other markets also for, for entrepreneurs, supporting them not, not to put people on the street, but really to invest in redirecting it. So it's a really long-time effort which goes way beyond Ukraine. And that is what the Chancellor meant with Zeitenwende. Mm. It's that we change the way uh, how we, for example, do trade with risky partners. We should not uh, be dependent from risky partners. We should try to reduce our dependency. And that is what we do in our energy supply, in our supply chains, of, and of course, in the way where we export. Well, I want to come back to that because uh, I can't let the uh, FTP spokesman on European policy representing an automobile-heavy district uh, yes. leave today before we address a hot-button issue in Brussels that's come up in, in recent days. But let's stay on site and for just a few more minutes. And there I want to get uh, away from Ukraine and to uh, Germany's own domestic military buildup. Yeah. Um, there was an interesting Twitter exchange between the German ambassador, Emily Haba, and the uh, freshly newly elected uh, junior senator from Ohio, J.D. Vance. Um, this will air in a few days. We're recording on Tuesday, March 7th, so it took place yesterday, yeah. uh, this Twitter exchange. And at the core of the, I think, dispute, if I could summarize it, would be that um, Ambassador Haber says, look, we are going to spend. We are going to reach 2%. Yeah. And J.D. Vance says, we heard these promises of reaching 2%. It doesn't look like Germany's going to reach it this year. It probably won't reach it next year. Is it going to come? Um, so what can you tell our viewers about uh, Zeitenwende? Is this real? Is Germany really going to take on a, a leadership role also on hard power in Europe? Or is this going to be kind of you know, played off into future years and never quite materialize? We discussed it in, uh, in, the, in the coalition already before the war at length. Um, and uh, we were discussing, especially from my side, from my party, but also, also uh, um, uh, from, from parts of the other coalition partners that we need very clearly to stick to the 2% uh, commitment which has been weighed in the NATO summit in Wales. Mm -hmm. Yes, there have been dissenting votes on that, but after the uh, Russian attack on, on, on Ukraine, uh, at least there is one good thing in it, besides bringing closer together NATO partners, that there is a general better understanding in Germany now that, that uh, we should really overcome sometimes our naive approach in face of uh, dictatorships such as Russia and China, and that we need, A, to get less dependent, B, to be more prepared militarily. And that is why uh, the 2% has been repeatedly very, very clearly committed to by the Chancellor, including here at his visit at, at, the President, at President Biden. In his interview with Fareed Zakaria, he made it clear it's, we will not only meet the 2% as soon as possible, I think it will be enshrined in the figures very clearly fiscally in uh, next year's budget. And already this year, we are spending the 100 billion constitutional amendment we made last year. You cannot spend it overnight. You need to, to really do buy the right things. But for example, we immediately signed the treaty to buy uh, F-35s. So what Senator Wentz maybe, maybe might have forgotten that uh, uh, we, ha we signed the treaties with the F-35s 
uh, and it will be paid immediately, and then, of course, the spending will be higher. But you cannot simply um, uh, buy it overnight. You need to do it. We do it now. And uh, the 2% for the future will be clear. And even more so, the Chancellor said something very important, what hasn't been maybe not, not enough being, 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 being understood. He said, even after this war, when it will be hopefully one day over and won by Ukraine, we will not go back and reducing our military production, but we will also in future invest in military production because we have seen now how difficult it is to, re, to, to make it work again uh, after we have, we have all, US and Germany and many others, invested or hoped for a peace dividend after the Cold War. It didn't materialize. Now it takes really a lot of time again to make functioning production of military arms and really to modernize the Bundeswehr. So we will not fall back into that mistake. Uh, and that is a commitment we, we do in NATO together with the allies. So therefore, for all criticism that might come, that's the good right of everybody to criticize. But we stand with our facts and we can proudly show that these critics are wrong. Okay, um, let's talk about, um, uh, uh, you talked about the post-Cold War order and the peace, Devin, and maybe um, a, a, just a minute or two on the post-Ukraine war order, um, since you're the Europe spokesman. If we go back to Bucharest in 2008, there was yep. this famous disagreement between then uh, President of the United States, George W. Bush, and, and Angela Merkel, along with others in Europe, about uh, Ukraine's NATO prospects. Obviously, the Ukrainians want into NATO now. Um, they've, they've made that very clear. There's an important summit coming up in Vilnius yeah. um, this summer, and Zelensky has already said if we just have the typical sort of trite language on membership action plan, uh, he won't be there. He wants more than that. What's your view about Ukraine's place in a, in a, I hate to say, kind of post-war Europe, because who knows where and how this conflict will unfold? But um, yeah. uh, I think yeah. on the European Union front, we have some answers from Europe, from Brussels. But even there, maybe you could elucidate um, how Ukraine fits into the puzzle. I think we, we need to be very clear in, in, in Ukraine's perspective in a, in a post-war setting. Uh, of course, we don't know how we will get there. Um, I think through military support, that's the best way. But still, we are not at the point. But once we are there, hopefully sooner than later, then we should be very clear about European Union member perspective and NATO perspective. The German government has not yet yet uh, indicated any final uh, position and when NATO membership should should happen. But let me say, therefore, very clearly, as a parliamentarian and as somebody who was always uh, fighting for this for this perspective, that uh, we think that uh, or that I think that we have the obligation once we have a peace settlement to put Ukraine in a situation where they can really fend off and deter any aggressor in the future. And that goes, in my eyes, best with NATO membership. But it will not come overnight. NATO membership can only come as a result of a process where you have, indeed, clear settlement of borders. Uh, the same with EU membership. EU membership cannot come overnight. Um, it can only come if your, your country is really prepared and if the problems with the neighbors if borders issues are settled. Um, and therefore, we need credible intermediary steps because both memberships will not come overnight. Uh, intermediary step for NATO could be, for NATO membership could be really give them the necessary arms um, to really deter any enemy. 
And that includes, of course, all sorts of branches of the military, Air Force, Navy, uh, Army. Um, then on the EU intermediary steps, we need to give Ukraine credible intermediary steps before becoming member uh, um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the future. And that could be, for example, membership in the single market. Membership in the single market of the EU, they would have fantastic comparative advantages. And look to Poland. Poland in 1989, what happened? It's an economic miracle. The same potential is in, is in Ukraine if we give them the membership in the single market. So I think we should give up thinking of 100% in, 100% out. We need intermediary steps, credible ones, that really bring these countries fast benefits. What are the hurdles to single market membership? What would the process of getting there look like? Fight against corruption is very important. Ukraine knows, and the government knows it themselves, they acknowledge it, they need to be really, really tough on, on, on fighting against corruption. Nobody can explain that, that we invest so much taxpayers' money um, in, some, in, in an area where we are not sure that corruption is being addressed. Ukraine is working on that. They are not, 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 not really in, at all levels there. It's also difficult to realize that in, the peace, in, in, a, in a war situation. But the, uh, the, the screening process for membership is, exact, is very critical when it comes to fighting corruption. And here we have, in the past, the biggest successes. Look at, again, Poland is my, my, my role model as an example. Poland in, in 89 was plagued by corruption. Uh, the same with Romania and other places in, in post-communist countries. The preparation process for the, for the EU for membership was the best way to fight corruption. Reformed social security systems, reformed tax systems, reformed public administration, that's the way to go. Well, yeah, and I, I actually think the war is connected to corruption because the one real driver of corruption in Ukraine, but also those other countries you mentioned, was the Russian presence and Russian influence. If you push out the Russians, you're pushing out corruption in a lot of ways and giving your country a real opportunity. The C in communism, I think, also stands for corruption, and, uh, or did stand for corruption. And, and uh, to the extent that Ukraine can win the war, I think they can also liberate themselves of yes. some of these shadowy Russian kind of corrupt influences. And they have a fantastic potential. Right. They have a well-educated well, well, uh, uh, population, multilingual. Look at, look at their, their enormous knowledge of languages. Uh, they have fantastic English language education, still speaking Russian, having a Ukrainian, then English. They are, they are, they are a well-trained um, population. Of course, now now also really enduring a lot of a lot of sufferances. I think it will be a very competitive market economy in Ukraine, and uh, they will be also in production in agriculture in many areas. Well, maybe some of those companies that have bemoaned their loss of Russian access will find a new market in Ukraine. To... Absolutely, absolutely. The other uh, element you just sketched out, which is the building up of the Ukrainian military so it can deter Russia on the pathway to NATO, requires a defense industrial base yes. to be able to support the Ukrainians. Um, Part of the story I've heard from German officials is that the pace of spending money uh, to get to 2% and, and perhaps some of the hurdles are connected to the provinces in, in Koblenz where the procurement agency is yeah. and just getting, the, getting, getting this kind of machinery yeah. going again. We in the United States, I think, are a little bit better off, but we're also finding that we have bottlenecks and we have problems in our supply chain. But you have so. DARPA, for example. Yeah. I would like to see a European DARPA. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So how is the defense industrial base doing in, in Germany and in Europe? Is this war woken them up and, and, and is, is government able to work with them? I know Boris Pistorius, the defense minister, has actually visited um, uh, Rheinmetall, for example, which I don't know yes. if the previous defense minister did. I think um, there may be progress there, but 
Correct me if I'm wrong. No, there's progress. And for example, these, the, the project we have now with the, with the Leos, uh, which, we, which we try to, to uh, the additional battalions which we will try to add, uh, find for, for, for Ukraine, that is, a, that is something we, we try to organize with the help of Rheinmetall. So the idea is that the Swiss uh, decommission their 80-something Leos, then sell it to Rheinmetall, and then Rheinmetall gives it to Ukraine. And we support all that by um, all sorts of means, money, training, and et cetera, and especially politically, because to bring, to invite our Swiss friends, uh, to bring them to this very important gesture is a very, very politically important thing we, we, we try to do in, in important talks with the, the Swiss. Um, and uh, I hope very much that uh, uh, this uh, decision will be made in Switzerland, because it would be, they have the largest amount of uh, rapidly available Leo's what we really need and really every day counts. I think we we need always to underline it. But again, defense, you're referring to Swiss neutrality being a hurdle. Yeah. Too. Um, but what we forget very often, and and what especially here in the U.S., I always always try to explain, we are working the next step in when we really want to draw lessons from this. What happened? Then we need to be better, not only in procurement. Uh, meaning where we buy, mm -hmm. but also how we finance this, 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 this armament, the weapons industry. Uh, we cannot pay all that by taxpayers' money. We need also to give those who invest in, in it, like Rheinmetall and others, the possibility uh, to, buy, to, to, to refinance part of the investments by, by facilitating an export system, an export system which is really up to date. And therefore, we need to find new framework guidelines for exportation. Um, France, for example, is very permissive, exporting a lot to a lot of places. Germany is very restrictive. If we want Europe, the European Union, really to become stronger on that area, and if we want to be a strong partner for the US, I think we should be, be more united also in the military level. Um, because the US wants a strong European partner, then it, that includes the military. Then we need to find and to identify areas where we can reform the way how we re-export um, uh, weapons uh, to partners all over the world. Uh, and we have a very tough discussion on that, who can be eligible for that and who cannot. The, uh the German and, uh, and French differences and sensitivities around weapons exports have been swirling, I think, for, for quite a few years. There's yes. some famous cables that leaked, I think, in Spiegel a few years back. Um, you're an expert on Franco-German relations. Uh, you were speaking French before this began with Ken Weinstein, my colleague here, uh, and also a good friend of yours. Um, since you have expertise in this and uh, you had kind of a similar function in the German-French coordination function in, in previously. Yeah, 10 years ago. How, how's it going with the French? Um, uh, you know, there have been uh, reports of, uh, of some unease in the relationship, some tur turbulent waters. We as Americans, um, I think, uh, uh, view the Franco-German engine as obviously crucial to Europe. Are, are, are things going well or are they still a little bit unsteady? The, the Franco-German engine, is, is, it, it is so crucial because we have understood after so many wars we fought against each other that we cannot change geography. We are neighbors and we have common enemies. Um, uh, look to France today. In France, there is a real, 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 um, let's say, let's say, yeah, I mean, a very, very, very clear movement where they understand that what Russia is doing, for example, in Africa, 
is, 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 is something which is totally based on anti-French feelings. Mm -hmm. um, um, some people in France thought, indeed, for a long time, that they can have some sort of separate relation, a little bit independent of NATO, a special channel to Russia. That feeling went away in, in many areas now in the French elite because they understand what Fran what, that France is mostly the instrument, how the Russians try to, to increase their own influence in Africa, blaming the, the, the French for, for, for being a colonialist power uh, and picture them themselves as the true friends of the, of the Africans. Well, I hope very much that, that nobody will believe that any longer in Mali or in places like this. Central African Republic. For the time being, it works. I'm pretty sure in the long term it will not work. But the French, they increasingly see, and I speak about the French government, not about the extreme right and left, but the French government very clearly sees that putting our act together as EU, working closely with NATO is the best way forward to counter Russian and Chinese influence. And that is a huge opportunity for us, the French and Germans, also to overcome our different approaches in, uh, regarding the military. Um, we, we need to find a compromise between the French and the classical German, German position, uh, where the French are very, very, as I said, when it comes to weapons exports, very, very permissive, we very restrictive. We, not, we need to find common ground. And maybe the key takeaway for all of this is, and know that a lot of Americans, um, especially on the Republican side, but also on the Democrat side sometimes, see a little bit with uh, suspicion the mili our military cooperation. This is in no way uh, uh, something which is against the US or replacing NATO. If the US really wants burden sharing, if you really want a burden sharing when you need to give more attention to China, then a military more capable Europe, I think, is in the, in, in, is in the interest of the US. A way, the best way to have a military capable Europe is certainly to have a, a strong French-German military cooperation where we would like to include the Dutch, the Polish, the Italians, the Spanish as much as possible, and we invite them also to, to join these, these joint projects. That is why we do both. We buy American weapons and we develop European weapons. We need both. Otherwise, the burden sharing, what you rightly want from us, will never happen. Yeah, I think there was some concern, if I remember, K. Bailey Hutchinson, when she was ambassador to NATO, yeah. uh, interpreted EDF and PESCO. These, these are European Union a defense fund and, and a structured cooperation mechanism as potentially protectionistic, and that, that caused uh, some, I think, ill Absolutely. in Washington. It, is, it, it, it could be protectionist if you, if you do it in a way which is, which is uh, um, uh, making barriers to NATO. But we made sure on the practical level, especially the Germans, that PESCO is something which is in no way directed against NATO cooperation. Okay. We have enshrined both in our coalition agreement, but also in, in the cooperation agreements, which we do in PESCO, uh, that we have all instruments in PESCO and what the EU does in military terms needs to be interoperable and compatible with NATO structures. So we don't want to double command structures, European EU command structures, NATO command structures. No, it's about strengthening the European pillar of NATO. Uh, but of course, it's a permanent task. You will always find on the political left, on the political right, guys who say, no, no, we should take our distance from NATO. That is wrong. So it's a permanent job to do. We are ready to do it. But uh, it will require, if I may say, also understanding from the US side that without military cooperation inside the EU, we will never be the partner you rightly expect us to be. I think probably the other 
two maybe points of skepticism or critique were just that one, the fund is still so small and it's taken you know, so long to build yeah. up a yeah. European defense capability. We've been talking about it since the 90s, even the 80s in some respects, and it's never quite materialized. And the other is, it's easy to see kind of a new glossy gleaming headquarters building for European defense being built in Brussels, which is probably the last thing that Brussels <laughs> needs. And, and there, I think American alarm bells or British alarm bells went off. But, but let's stay with protectionism and yeah. let's go to the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Um, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, is uh, heading here on, on Friday to meet with the president. This will be a major topic of discussion. Not the only one, but it's clearly the headliner issue. Give me the read on how upset and sour the Europeans are with the Americans taking a climate initiative forward. You think that they would be uh, all celebrating that fact, but the way it's been structured has, I think, bruised feelings in Berlin, Brussels, Paris, quite frankly, also in Seoul and potentially even Tokyo, even though the Japanese have more production in country, so uh, in the mm. United States, and it might worry a little bit less. Well, first, first of all, yes, yes, we're not happy with it, but, but first of all, we don't blame the, the U.S., we blame ourselves because we maybe haven't, haven't been clear enough in, in, in signaling uh, what that, that would mean for us. I mean, we have a strong uh, representation of the European Commission here. We have the European Commission uh, responsible for the trade issues. Uh, we have frequent contacts between the governments. So what we need to do, maybe even more clear than we did, uh, that um, we, 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 we really have an interest <laughs> in appearing in your legislation, uh, such as you have a right interest and, and, and justified interest to appear in our legislation. When we Europeans do things like CBAM, uh, or when you do, not to speak about IRA, when you do the outbound investment review, which is soon to come, then I think we, we both need to, 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 to have a learning lesson ahead of us that we, we need to better anticipate what does that legislation, that specific one, mean for the other side of the ocean. If we want to unleash the potential in the transatlantic relation, and I mean, that's, that's Zeitenwende. Right? Zeitenwende is let's better rely on our partners than to invest in critical, our strange guys uh, turning ever more into dictators. If we really want to, to, to have a stronger transatlantic relation, more robust and more uh, capable really to fence off uh, Russian and Chinese aggression, uh, then we should not build unnecessary trade barriers between us. That is our point. And I th I'm pretty sure that um, there should be a, a way to include, for example, in what IRA wants, to include not only Mexico and Canada, but also the EU, South Korea and Japan. Um, the way it was made, IRA, um, a, a little bit made as a third party, like, let's say, Gabun or Bangladesh or whatever, uh, I think that's not, that's not our potential. And the same applies the other way around. When we do legislation on CBAM, on things like this, we should also think, what does it mean for the U.S.? So that is our homework to do. Now we are in the repair mode. Uh, after IRA, uh, a, lot of, a lot of back and forth between the Commission and, and Europe has been happening. Now von der Leyen is coming. I'm pretty sure that will result in a, in, in, in a good result. Um, I say, hopefully with a clause where EU is on the same page as, as, as Canada and, and Mexico is. But I think better than always being doing legislation than repairing the, the, the side effects, the collateral effects would be to anticipate what does it mean. And here we need to, be, to become better on both sides of the ocean. And especially, please, don't, don't, don't use IRA on the European side. That's a message to my European 
um, the, the colleagues listening to this, but I always say back home, don't use IRA to build a protectionist agenda in, 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 in the EU um, uh, with industry policy and subsidizing industries. No, that, that will not strengthen us. We, when we did the single market in the EU, we decided not to do it in a way which, which, is, uh, which is subsidizing any, uh, um, industries, but which is really creating a competitive market. Uh, so I think that is there's a lot of lessons to be learned from IRA and from European decisions and we should develop a sort of reflex, a transatlantic reflex. Uh, whenever we do legislation, what does it mean for our closest partner, meaning the transatlantic partner? Uh, one of the really nubs of the issue or the heart of the matter in the IRA is the, uh, the, the transition from a combustion engine towards a green one and an attempt to move in that direction with electric uh, automobiles. This is a big issue right now um, oh, yes. in, in Europe. Um, those of us who are reading this from afar are hearing that the FTP is saving the combustion engine um, um, at the same time aggravating some of your coalition partners. Can you give our, our viewers a little bit of insight in what's happening, what's going on, what the state of play is on all of this? Well, a combustion engine can be, can be run uh, clean or dirty. We want uh, clean combustion engines to be um, a potential model in the market also in the future. What is happening in Europe right now is that a lot of players, um, uh, yes, indeed, our coalition partners, but also states like France and, and Netherlands, they want to completely replace combustion engines by electric vehicles uh, af, uh, by, by, by 2045. Uh, 2035. So that is something which, which indeed, which indeed uh, has the support of the European Parliament. But for all legislation in the EU side, you need also a majority, not only in the Parliament, but also in the Council of Ministers, meaning in the members, among the member states. And Italy, Slovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, Poland, and some others, and Germany, have an interest in having the, the possibility as auto countries to have also combustion engines possible on the market if they run clean. Now, where uh, what is clean? Clean energy is sustainable fuels, e-fuels. Um, I was visiting Iowa some time ago and I was fascinated to see the biodiesel production. It is made from 100% raw material from old, old oil, from, 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 from from uh, it's 100% recycled. Not a single, not a single square centimeter of 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 of, of land is being for, used for that. It's 100% recycled. It's clean energy. It's it's sustainable energy. Why shouldn't we do that? So that is the fight we are fighting. Um, if we really want defossilize and decarbonize, then we should not rule out clean combustible engines in the future. Let alone um, the past potential for. For for um, um, having a, a sustainable energy for all those old cars on the market, which will for decades still be around in Germany, in the U.S., in Africa, in Asia, if we you exclusively go for electric cars, that is alone not enough. If we really want to go fast to less carbon, therefore sustainable fuels, I think, is a very very important thing if we really want to go beyond um, uh, cliches uh, in protecting the environment and have, uh, trying to do something which is really um, 
using technology to defend the environment. Well, let's end um, on the issue du jour any day in Washington, which is China. Um, and, uh, and perhaps what you just said is kind of a fitting transition because uh, by my lights, or one of my major worries, is that we're going to move from one major dependency on Russia and fossil fuels toward another major dependence in alternatives on China. Absolutely. Spiegel yeah. just had a major report on uh, what I think is well known to, to all of us, but really spelled it out in dark terms, how China controls the supply chain for solar panels. Yep. They have essentially killed off the German-American solar panel uh, production industry, which was one of the leaders early on, but through subsidies and other uh, methods, the Chinese have basically undercut that industry and, and, and killed it off. Um, to take you back to your home district, Heilbronn, um, which has, as you said, automobiles, manufacturing, rely also on the Chinese market. How vulnerable or dependent, or however you want to put it, is Germany on China? And as a corollary to that, in the event of events, and there is some sort of conflagration, say, in the Taiwan Straits, can the United States count on Germany to take the steps it needs to take as part of the alliance, even if that's not within the NATO area of responsibility, to, you know, take tough financial yeah. and other measures? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, 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 here we are again at, at uh, what I call the, the, the takeaways or the lessons learned from, from, um, the, from the uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine. We have learned... Uh, as Germans, uh, yes, and we were quite slow in learning it, that in the end we are equally um, really politically totally dependent of uh, supply from Russian gas and natural gas. So the natural lesson from it is where else are we dependent, where can we re reduce dependency before it becomes dangerous. And there clearly we should look to China. Uh, critical raw materials, that is an area where we indeed need to urgently reduce our dependency. Uh, that's why the Chancellor did a uh, visit to, to Canada and made an agreement with the Canadians uh, that we will buy uh, a large chunk of it uh, in, in future in Canada. Of course, that's more expensive than, than, than from China. But the Germans, I think, let, I think we should uh, also be, 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 be able to analyze ourselves. A lot of our success, yes, is because we have fantastic workforce, we have competitiveness, but to be honest, sometimes we have also quite exclusive relations with suppliers such as China and Russia that helped us a lot in the market, that frustrated a lot of our European opponents. Mm. And we Germans need to understand that we cannot act as free riders. We need also to try to reduce our, our dependency. And if the consequence is that we have to pay more for critical materials when buying um, in Canada, um, then I think that's also an act of solidarity um, by really buying where we have no uh, uh, yeah, zero problem uh, delivery partner. China is an unreliable partner in deliveries, and that is why I think we together, both of us, should cr critically review what we did in the past. Both you and we have become too dependent from China in many ways. It was the easy way to go, it was cheap, it was at hand, but it made us dependent. Let's draw the lesson. Let's try to redirect, to de-risk, not to decouple. We don't want complete decoupling from China. Uh, if we have, can have trade in, in, in areas where it's not risky, where it's not dangerous, let's do it. But in all areas that are security relevant, that are risky, uh, especially when it comes to, to technology uh, and raw materials, we should find other suppliers. Yeah, and in a perfect world, we would have 
from an American point of view, or at least my point of view, TPP and TTIP as a friend-shoring exercise to build out Absolutely, uh, yeah. trade. Um, before I let you go, um, uh, one last question about two strategy documents that a lot of us Germany watchers have been anticipating. A national yeah. security strategy, which uh, we thought might be rolled out at the Munich Security Conference. It's been delayed a bit. And uh, perhaps subordinate to that or related to it, a new China strategy as well that the foreign ministry has the pen on, but of course is being coordinated throughout government. Um, what should we look for? What do you think is going to be in these documents? And when do you think they're going to be released? Well, schedule-wise, I cannot say when it comes. It will come both, both will come this year. Uh, it's it's uh, it's classical government strategy, so it's not not, not something which is voted by the parliament. Mm -hmm. It's 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 government only, um, and um, we work on both uh, strategies. Um, but uh, so I cannot tell you which one will come first. I can only tell you my expectations, and certainly what I what I always report back to to Berlin after my visits, that uh, that. Uh, for sure, there will be a lot of readers here uh, in the U.S. extremely keen to see and read the right signals in it. And I think a signal which would be very welcome uh, is that we do these strategies by very clearly saying we need a transatlantic approach when we define our security and we when, especially when we define our future relations with China. Don't do it alone. Don't develop things like artificial intelligence and regulations um, and quantum technology for the market. Don't develop it alone. We need to find ways to do it together with our transatlantic partners. That would be my expectation. And that is what I would like to see in it very much because this is, I think, the way forward. How can we, in the world of the 21st century, where China has a long-term strategy to keep others um, um, in dependency of them, how can we still be the norm setters in the 21st century in face of that. Europe alone, US alone are certainly not strong enough to do that because the long-term strategy of China is very strong, very consolidated, and very, 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 yes, let's say, yeah, indeed, long-term. Because our attention span is so short-term, always in the next elections, that sometimes the Chinese outsmart us by the sheer fact of their capacity of thinking long-term. So therefore, I think it's very important that while uh, still having elections every two years or four years, still meaning not becoming less democratic, we need to become more resilient by joining our forces. I think that's the way forward. And that, therefore, my expectation to these strategies is exactly that. And as I said, to develop a transatlantic reflex. Think about what, what we do means for our closest partner. Michael Link, thanks so much for joining us. To those of you watching at home, thanks again for joining another Hudson event. Uh, you can follow all of our work on Hudson.org, our writings and research on a variety of issues, both on our center pages and our homepage. Uh, please join us again next time as uh, we take on another transatlantic issue. Until then, thanks so much and see you soon. <laughs>